Hello and welcome. My name is Joe Frost and here with my co-host Peter Linus, this is Being Human. In today's episode, Peter and I catch up with Tim Mackey, co-founder of The Bible Project, pastor, teacher and all-round big brain. We're going to hear from him his story of how he gave his life to Jesus, why he fell in love with the Bible, and how digging into some of the big picture stories that we see across scripture, we can understand more about who we are and who we have been created to be. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did having it. Sit back, listen and enjoy. It is our absolute delight to welcome Tim Mackey from The Bible Project, joining us all the way over from Portland, USA. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, yeah. So happy to be here talking with you guys. Um, I've got to say, when I discovered The Bible Project, it was the most exciting thing to discover hmm. people who were obsessed even more than I am around Genesis and Revelation hmm. and the hmm. meta-narrative of the Bible. Hmm. Thank hmm. you so much for hmm. the sheer weight and wealth of the work that you guys do in the Bible Project and making the God story so accessible to so many of us. But before we jump into the Bible Project itself and what you're trying to do there, tell us a little bit about you. One of the favorite questions we have is tell us a couple of stories that help us understand who you are and where you're coming from. Sure. Yep. Okay. I live in Portland, Oregon, which is on the upper west coast of the United States. And let's see, I'm a follower of Jesus. I started following Jesus when I was almost 20 years old. My family attended church as I was growing up. And Portland's a typical West Coast American advanced secular type of city. There weren't really any other Christian kids I knew in my neighborhood or families. And I really thought I don't know why, but I just really thought it was all pretty stupid, the church Jesus thing at a young age. And I don't know why, but my parents put a skateboard in my hands for my 11th birthday. And as well as a subscription to a very popular skateboard magazine called Thrasher, Thrasher magazine. And they had no idea what they were putting in my hands. <laughs> it really got enamored with and involved, immersed in Portland skateboard culture, which is different than California skateboard culture. It's a little more underground punk rock at the time, a little more dangerous, kind of putting putting you, putting a kid in touch with the more seedy parts of urban culture here in Portland. <laughs> but so that was my environment in my teenage years. And so I asked my parents to quit making me go to church right around 13. And in order to preserve the relationship, they decided to go with me on that one and just love me and pray for me all through my teenage years. And it turns out that strategy worked, at least with me. And so I found myself going to the skate park every week with some friends that was owned and built by a church. So I started going when I was like 16 and it was run by followers of Jesus, built by followers of Jesus. And to skate the whole night, you know, you would like register and you could skate the first half of the night, but then they would turn the lights at the park off. It's a big warehouse, um, you know, midway through the night, like around 8 p.m. And it's one of the, you know, skaters who ran the park 
would give a talk about Jesus or talk about one of his sayings and so on. And to skate for the second half of the night after the talk, you had to sit through the talk. That was like the thing you signed up for <laughs> when, you know, you signed a little waiver at the beginning when you registered or whatever. So anyway, so my friends and I would go and make fun of these Jesus, you know, but the, but the guys who actually ran the skate park were really talented skateboarders. Mm -hmm. And so over the years, I started going when I was 16. And over the years, just Jesus became more and first interesting, curious and interesting. Like, whoa, my, I don't remember any of this being talked about by people at church when I was a kid. And then like compelling. And then it was just hearing his teachings and stories about him year after year. Uh, he became so compelling and then unavoidable to me by the time I was almost 20. And so that was kind of my roundabout journey. And so I made a real kind of radical life conversion shift. And th there you go. The life's been a wild ride ever since then. How did you get from a skater mildly curious about Jesus? Oh, to yeah. Being a Jesus follower to being a Bible scholar. That feels like quite an interesting journey. Yeah. It, well, yeah, I didn't think it was at the time. I just thought, I guess life's really strange. I don't know. It takes you places. <laughs> I mean, <yeah. laughs> um, so the across the street from that skateboard park and the church that started it was the uh, Christian college. And it turns out actually the church and, and the college had been founded by the same like group of people back in the 1940s or something like that. So when I started following Jesus and kind of volunteering and helping around at the skate park, uh, uh, they asked me to give the Jesus talk one night, the guy who started it. And I was like, what? what are you? So I like, I tell my story. But other than that, I don't have a lot to say. So I did that. And I guess that went well enough that the guy who started the skate church ministry um, asked me if I would consider teaching a Bible study to junior high skaters who would like start following Jesus, like a Bible study. And I was like, what am I going to do? I don't, I don't know what to say. I just started to read the Bible myself. And so a friend, a couple of friends and I, who all started following Jesus together, signed up for classes at that college. And this is my first semesters there. I just sat in introduction to biblical literature, Old Testament biblical theology, and just, you know, there were a couple just professors who were just wizards um, and could tie together <clears throat> like biblical studies, culture, language, history, philosophy, art pop culture you know and i was just like this is this is the gateway to everything like <laughs> and so uh i just really it was through classes and then the skate park i would just walk across the street and serve every evening hang out with skate kids telling them about jesus and then like teaching the stuff that i was learning across the street and i just fell in love with biblical studies and it was my gateway for learning about everything. Truly, I almost failed out of high school. So uh, it was really my gateway into, I was also, I had smoked, I smoked a lot of pot in my teenage years. And so I think I literally my brain was clearing and developing, you know, the frontal lobes, I think were finally locking into place in my early twenties. And so it was just such a rich season and rich community connected with telling my peers about Jesus in the city of Portland. And it was a sweet, sweet season. So um, I started learning biblical languages then, finished 
that undergrad and was like, I have so many questions about where the Bible came from and early Christianity and how it started. So I went to seminary and focused on church history, um, theology, and then as much like Bible, you know, as I could. And then when I finished that, a master's, I was like, I have so many questions still. And so my Hebrew teacher had gone to a university in the Midwest of the United States to a PhD program in Hebrew Bible and Jewish studies. And it was a really premier program if you just wanted to do Hebrew Bible in the context of ancient Israel and a Jewish culture and tradition. And it attracted many Christian students, but I was really wanted to get outside of a majority Christian environment to study the Hebrew Bible and even early Christianity. And so that's what drew me to that program for my PhD. And there you go, 14 years later. <laughs> you still have um, a lot of questions. <laughs> I, oh, I still have a zillion questions, but I've learned like really what that season was about was learning how to ask questions, how to think, how to figure out how to answer your questions or where to go to move towards your questions. Mm so that you can just set yourself up for a lifetime of learning. And that's kind of what I've been able to do. So that's great. And you flip that lifetime of learning then into like a lifetime of teaching in a sense, but in, yeah. diff in very different ways. Um, I mean, I'm really familiar with the Bible project, but I was really fascinated, I suppose, as to how you got from there. I didn't know any of your backstory terms. I hear you and I'm just mm. kind of thinking, hey, classic pastor turned academic, kind of turned into mm. this stuff. And I'm like, oh, there's a really different backstory here. Maybe that little bit of the next bit into the Bible project, and then we'd love to dig into, I mean, your deep passion for the, the Bible and the story is so clear, but to why that particular outlet for it? That... Well, I think the way that I started following Jesus was it was Jesus first and Bible second. So all those years, I was just Jesus himself, his sayings and the stories about him that drew my attention. And I wasn't reading the Bible. I hadn't grown up reading it. And so it was just Jesus. I was so down for, and I still am. <laughs> like he's, the, he's so beautiful and so compelling when, when you can really hear what he's saying and what he was doing. And part of the challenge is that throughout church history and our different church traditions and cultures layer a lot of other things on top of Jesus. And many of them are good and beautiful. And some of them are less helpful. And so I think it went Jesus first then the Bible. And for me, the Bible played the role of constantly illuminating Jesus more. That was the reason why I was reading the Bible was because I wanted to follow Jesus with more integrity, more intellectual integrity, and within a more cohesive view of the world. And Jesus constantly appealed to his Bible, which was in the first three quarters of my Bible called the Old Testament. And so that was kind of, that was the dynamic was I was reading the Bible because I was a a disciple of Jesus. And reading the Bible was about making him more compelling and clear to me. So I didn't have Bible baggage or anything like that from my childhood or things that I had to unlearn. It was just all, it was just all brand new. So I don't know what to tell you. Je following Jesus was just everything. That was my life. And so the Bible became my life because the Bible illuminated Jesus in ways that I had never even imagined were possible. And I don't know, truly also, I just didn't have anything else going on in my life. <laughs> like I, I didn't even have plans to go to college. I was just going to work at, you know, a shipping company packing freight trucks full of boxes so that I could earn enough money to 
buy clothes and skateboards to hang out with my friends. Like that's what I was doing with my life. We're all desperate to come up. There's two aspects of strike. One, you do visuals, but also you always see oh. big picture. Why? Why? Yeah. You could just go to teaching passionate about the Bible and start to do kind of verse by verse. Why that particular frame yeah, of the way you do it and why the visual lens you put on? Oh, I see. Well, so two things. One is I mean, it may just be temperament, but I, I don't feel like I've understood anything until I've understood it from the very bottom, every detail all the way up. Like that's just how I process things. So I don't do good with summaries. I like creating summaries for myself to help me understand things. But if I want to really know something, I want to know it from the bottom all the way up. So that's that. And that's the kind of tool set that I've tried to develop for how to study the Bible in its context and so on. So that's one piece. Um, but then the visual piece, I always, like I said, I was, I was really interested in graffiti art, mostly on other people's property when I was a teenager. <laughs> but but I always just, that was, my, my dad's a graphic designer and a painter. And so I grew up around that. And so when I was in college, one of the guys I met at the skate park, another leader there was a guy named John Collins. And when I went off from college to go study ancient languages and Hebrew Bible, he went on to start a couple businesses making short animated explainer videos for clients, mostly in the tech world. And when I finished my PhD and moved back to Portland, where I was from, he was five years into a business that was doing that. And he was kind of bored. And so he approached me with the idea. We had stayed in touch over the years. And so he approached me with the idea of, hey, you know, I have this company, I have an animation studio, we make this thing. What if we made videos like this, but about the stuff that we've been talking about for all these years and that, you know, you've been learning? And I was like, that sounds so much fun. So, because I had just been teaching in churches. I was a teaching pastor and loved that and thought I was going to do that. And uh, I was an adjunct professor, but I really loved the experience of trying to condense the complexity and nuance of the Bible down into not simplistic summaries, but simple in, in terms of getting to the essence of the thing. And mm -hmm. so um, it turns out my friend John is also really gifted at understanding complex ideas and boiling them down to their essence. This is a passion both of us have, but from really different, because he's a church kid. He grew mm -hmm. up in youth group and all that. And so somehow when we combined our powers and our friendship, we the Bible project was the result. So it was it wasn't a grand vision that we had. It was just what if we could make videos that are out there that really condense, but with beautiful visual explanation of the core ideas in the Bible. And so the Bible project was the result of that. For which we are all incredibly grateful. Uh -huh. um, me, me too, like including me. I love it too. <laughs> I wonder whether or not it's that Jesus first part of your story combined mm. with the curiosity of your temperament mm. that has led to this gift of yours in terms of what the Bible Project offers people, which is that mm. unified story, that cohesive mm. story of the mm -hmm. God story. Mm -hmm. uh, why is it that looking at the Bible as a single narrative, mm. rich, nuanced, complex, multi-layered, mm. 
what is it about the the unified story that you find a so interesting to yourself but also mm. do you think has sparked such imagination in such a variety <clears throat> of spaces with your audiences yeah wow maybe one one way to think about it in terms of my own intellectual formation one of those first professors that i mentioned you know when i stepped into my first classes one of his most influential teachers was a Hebrew Bible professor named John Selhammer, um, an American Hebrew Bible scholar. Dr. Selhammer had a really unique approach where he was trying to recover Christian scholarship that was listening to all the centuries of Jewish biblical scholarship, going all the way back to the time of Jesus. And so I was just introduced to how... Um, the Hebrew Bible was read and understood within Jewish tradition as well. And um, it turns out that even the he what the old, Christians call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible was designed as a cohesive, unified collection um, consisting of many scrolls, but they've all been editorially connected as a unified collection. So that unity isn't just something that is imposed, that Christians impose on the Old Testament. It's actually part of its design feature. And so the question is, well, what is that unity about? And in, in essence, it's that the earliest stories in what we call the book of Genesis have been designed as a, as a kind of not just prologue, but truly like the opening minute of a symphony or a great jazz piece where it's the core melody, all the key notes and key ideas are all introduced right there in the opening stories. And then they're just on recycle, repeat and creative twists all the way through. And so that made such a deep impact on me that the early Genesis narratives became for me like the key to understanding the whole rest of the Bible. And then I began to learn from Christian and Jewish scholars studying early Christianity, that Jewish Bible readers like Jesus and in the time of Jesus were so tuned in to the unified themes and ideas of their Hebrew Bible that you start to hear the music of the Hebrew Bible any page you turn to in the stories of Jesus or the writings of the apostles. So for me, it was just like, oh my gosh, this isn't just a random collection of texts that dropped out of heaven to tell people what to do to make God smile upon you. It's really a unified collection with a unified story that has things it wants to say that are really profound mm. That about the biggest questions we all ask, like, who are we? Where are we? What is the problem? What's good? How do you know what's good? If we don't know what's good, what results when we make decisions based on what we think is good, but actually isn't. And that creates a lot of problems. What's the solution, if there is any, and where's this all going? Like, it's the stuff we all think about anyway. And I was like, oh, I guess it's what the Bible's about. And that, but the way it communicates is different than how we encounter literature in our modern world. And so that's why you need to build some tools. And as I hear that, I suppose my question is like, what are some of those key melodies? So as more of a church yeah. kid, it felt like we started in Genesis 3. And we said we oh. were being totally biblical, but like we started in three, the fall, yeah. the problem, you're wrong, yeah. you've got a problem. And it took me a little bit of time at Bible College and, and Regent probably to get mm -hmm. back into that. But when you talked about that opening minute, those core melodies in Genesis mm -hmm. 1 and 2, what are those, help us understand those melodies better? Yeah. Well, um, just as a quick note, both Jesus 
and one of the main apostle authors of the New Testament, Paul, both have moments where they condense the storyline to its essence. Um, Jesus, it's, it's in some comments he makes about his Bible, the Hebrew Bible, in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24. And he says it two times, but he summarizes the storyline of the Bible as um, God anointing someone, which is all about God appointing someone to be his image and representative, about them entering into a period of suffering and trial, and then emerging out through that suffering and trial to resurrection life and new life. And then what he says is forgiveness for the nations. So it's like a three-part story. And what's interesting is that the Apostle Paul summarized it, same ideas in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he talks about how the scriptures are designed to give us wisdom about how we need to be rescued through trust in the Messiah, who is Jesus. So Paul's got this idea that there's something that's gone wrong, and there's a way to make it through that what is wrong by trusting and trusting in somebody, the anointed one. And you're like, oh yeah, that's what Jesus said, an anointed one. And there's something that's gone wrong that we need to be rescued from. And I guess you do it by trusting in God and then the Messiah is Jesus. And if I just stay in that storyline, I guess I'll become a wise person. That's what that's Paul's summary. So that's two summaries from Jesus and the apostles. If we turn to the Hebrew Bible, what we find is essentially that story but the way it filled out. And so essentially the, the Hebrew Bible begins with two narratives that are just complementary and set alongside each mm -hmm. other. And they're both stories about God bringing life and order and a garden out of nothingness. But the images for that nothingness are different in the two stories. So the first story is the well-known seven day creation story, which begins with very common images from the biblical author's time and culture about the pre-creation nothingness, which is imagined in the opening lines of Genesis 1 as a dark, chaotic ocean with no order, wild and waste. And so what God proceeds to do is speak 10 times over a course of seven days to separate and to begin creating bounded areas of order so that dry land can emerge. He summons the, the plants out of the land, and then creatures. And then the crowning achievement is to appoint images of the creator to rule and have oversight over the land on God's behalf, male and female. And then you're just like, hooray, that's great. That sounds amazing. But, but a key repeated motif is, is that seven times there are moments when God will separate or he'll, he'll kind of do one of these stages to bring order out of non-order, and it, we hear this line, God saw that it was good. So there's this motif about what God is apparently after in bringing something out of nothing is the generation of what in the Hebrew word is tov, or goodness. So this is the biblical author's way of talking about how, yes, we live in a material you know, world, but we also have a a sense that there is something transcendent um, that all, every human culture through every all of history has had different ways of naming this. There is something that transcends, that's above and beyond, that we all want, that we all are aiming for, and that we encounter in creation itself, and it's goodness. 
And that the one that there is the claim of that story is that there is one to whom all of that goodness and that longing for goodness, intuitions of that goodness point, and that's to the source, the beautiful mind and heart that is behind all of creation. And that that one apparently wants to share existence and even more wants to partner with creatures who are more like the creator than unlike, mm-hmm. or, and they're more like the creator than fish are. And fish are really good. <laughs> so there's something about humans, this the concept of the image that humans have the unique ability to look at creation as a sign and a symbol of something that transcends it and as an expression of someone's value and goodness. And that we are called to steward that goodness and to help it flourish in the world. That's the beautiful vision of the first creation narrative. I suppose what I would love to tap into is that symphony, those notes, especially we find in Genesis 1 and 2. And obviously this is the Being Human Project. We're a little bit obsessed about what it means to be human. And the Imago Dei, the, the bearing of God's image to sharing in his likeness, being closer to what it is to be like God than anything else. Mm-hmm. And yet that phrase, bearing God's image, bearing God's likeness, it doesn't bubble up specifically, explicitly, very often mm-hmm. in scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's right. yet it's hinted at everywhere. Yeah. How yeah, do yeah. you um how can you help us recognize those motifs, those me- melodic notes mm-hmm. as they see through through scripture? How do we spot the hyperlinks, as it were, yeah. about yeah. what it means to be human that's told in that meta-narrative? That's good. Yeah. So biblical authors don't communicate the way that we often would think is intuitive, but that's just because of our cultural shaping here, you know, in modern Western settings. So biblical authors and Jewish Traditional culture in general values indirect, implicit communication that the listener has to work very hard for and keeps discovering new layers of meaning and significance the longer you re-read and re-meditate on the communication. So not great for tweets. (laughs) Anti-tweet. The Hebrew Bible is (laughs) anti-Twitter in the sense of that it's not short and it's not simple and clear on its first reading. Um, and, and that's on purpose. Yeah, totally. Yeah, for, for better or worse. So I think for better. Um, so uh, my point in saying that is that that opening portrait, that opening narrative just governs everything that follows in the story. It's so taken for granted that it doesn't need to be explicitly repeated because you're just supposed to internalize it. And especially because the creature that you encounter that is called the image of God is a creature called Adam, which means human. And then when Adam is defined, again, on day six of Genesis one, Adam is defined as male and female. So what that means is any human you encounter, man or woman in the pages to follow, is an image of God. Mm-hmm. And um, they have been called and given a responsibility to partner with God uh, in overseeing whatever you know they have to care for, but also to imitate God in seeing what is good and then also helping that goodness flourish and spread even more. And that's where the second um, story comes in, which is the well-known Eden, the well-known but not well-understood Eden story to follow. And so what you meet is um, a character named Adam, which begins as a single figure, then becomes 
male and female. That's a whole rabbit hole. We don't have time to go down. But the God appoints human um, to work and to keep, which are key words connected with both royalty and also priestly oversight and care for a heaven on earth sacred sacred spot. And actually the heaven on earth is key. The whole point of the Garden of Eden is that it's a place where God's presence and the human realm are one spot. Mm-hmm. And it's a place where the humans have access to a kind of life image in the famous tree of life that that allows them to transcend their mortal origins. You know, they're made from the dirt, but they're actually called to participate in the life of heaven by connecting to God through this tree. But they have a choice about good and bad, the famous tree of knowing good and bad. And it's the same word as good from the previous chapter. And so up to now, God has been the one to provide and define what is good. But then if humans are going to have real authority as God's partners, they're going to have to make their own calls about what is good and not good, which means they're going to have a choice about whether they're going to trust God or not trust God's wisdom about what is good and bad. And that is essentially what the trees are about in Eden. Will they trust that God will give us what we need to know in God's timing? Or will I see what is good in my own eyes, take it and seize good for, for myself? And of course, that's that's what the humans do. So we need to remember the characters who take and eat from the tree, their names are human and Eve, Adam, and then Eve, whose name means living one or life. So um, they're represented, they're individual characters in the story, but they represent humanity and living things. (laughs) They are also representative characters. And so things go terrible. They're exiled from the garden and their folly lands them back in the realm of mortality, conflict and violence, and it all goes terribly wrong. And so where you end up in the story then is about a lost opportunity. Apparently humans are the kinds of creatures who continually have a sense that we're made for something more, Hmm. for Tove and for union with the beautiful mind and heart that's behind everything, and that the best kinds of life happen in human communities when the life of heaven is permeating and God's presence is, is permeating our lives on earth. But those moments are so fleeting, and those moments are so fragile when we do encounter them. And why is that? And that's really what those stories are trying to say, is that we're made for something more, and if we're honest, we know it and we taste it and experience it in small ways, but it's very fleeting and fragile. And the Eden story is trying to explain, give an account uh, as to why that's the case. And then the question is, well, are we lost outside of Eden then? And the answer of the story is a resounding no. God makes a promise that there's going to come a human, someone from the human lineage of the woman who's going to undo everything that went wrong in Eden. And that's why the biblical authors are obsessed with genealogies. <laughs> um, but but what happens is that God still brings blessing and goodness and life after their exile from the Garden of Eden in the form of families, in the form of abundant crops. And so what you'll find throughout the cycle, pretty much of the story, is um, God keeps appointing new anointed ones or key ones that God chooses and says, okay, um, well, if your parents blew it, let's try the kids. And so there'll be a story about Cain and Abel, or there'll be a story about Noah and his kids. 
and they'll get teed up with responsibility and opportunity and God gives them a chance. Um, I was about to use an American baseball metaphor, <laughs> but I don't <laughs> know how that plays. Some people. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say a chance to up at the, up at the bat. Oh, that one. We could do oh. that. That's cricket as well. Okay. So. Cricket. Okay. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, and um, the narratives of what people do after Adam and Eve are usually those stories are told using the language of the Garden of Eden stories. Mm. People see something that's good, they take it, and something terrible happens afterwards. And so what God does is he recruits, calls, and commits himself to a family, family of Abraham, the people of Israel, and says, I want to bring about the blessing of Eden and creation to all the nations, but through this family. And, you know, the long, complicated story of Israel is of their mostly failure, sometimes successes, that being God's images and anointed ones in the world. But the failures overpower those successes so that the whole nation ends up exiled in Babylon and this persecuted ethnic religious minority living in exile. And what is how's God going to rescue the world now? Because um, he's made a promise to this family. And so that's the crisis that leads us up to the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus is told as the story of the God of Israel becoming human to be the human image of God that we're all made to be, but have mm. consistently failed to be. And that's why the story of Jesus is told as the replaying of the story of Israel, but he succeeds where Israel failed. But it's also told as like the story of a new Adam and Eve, where he's like the new human who you know, succeeds where we have all failed. And um, so in a way, within that unified way of telling the story, Jesus is actually the first real human. <laughs> uh, and, you know, what's interesting is like the gospel authors are really interested in that story where Jesus in the wilderness mm -hmm. went, underwent his, you know, testing or temptation. And his temptation is about food, whether or not he'll provide food for himself in his own time, which is this interesting inversion of Adam and Eve's food test. But it happens in the wilderness, the opposite of garden. And then Jesus's last test is it a garden in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm -hmm. And once again, you find Jesus submitting his own desires and will to God's desire and will, which is that he would give up his life on behalf of the many so that through his death and resurrection, life could be restored to the lost children of Adam and Eve. And uh, there, so I'll just do one more sentence and then I'll stop. So, so what's key then about then after the resurrection is Jesus, the whole thing is about for Jesus's life to actually be the human life mm -hmm. for all, on behalf of and for all humanity. And so how does that life get shared? And this is where the spirit comes in, where Jesus sends out the spirit of God out into the world and th through the movement of his followers so that his actual life presence and like his force and power to create tov and goodness in the world is now what inhabits and empowers his followers, um, which is why the Apostle Paul will talk about how to be a follower of Jesus is to have the image of God renewed within us. That, he uses that language in his letter to the Ephesians and Colossians. So it really, it's all about being the image of God. It's about being human. That's like what the whole story is about. <laughs> I want, why do you think then we, or do you think, particularly in Protestant theology, we have not done a good job with the image of God if it's so central? Mm. Mm. And I, I mean, 
I th- I think it would have been slightly jarring to the Hebrew readers at first, just how central that image was. It was kind of in mm. contrast to the engineers. But then, as you mm. say, it was quite subtle and mm. quite kind of indirect. But it feels like the way you've woven that last five minutes mm. is just incredible and go, but mm. why did I not hear that for 25 years of my life? In short, mm. Tim, sort out my life as a therapy session. Oh man. Yeah, right. No, you but why, why does that image of God piece seem, am I right that it seems to be minimized a lot? And if so, why do you think, I think it such just an depends on the, isn't there? I think it just depends on the, the traditions that we're a part of, okay. you know? Um, yeah. Just like every human life is different based on it, our social locations and when and where we grew up. So the Jesus movement has spread to so many cultures all over the planet and developed traditions and traditional ways of summarizing what the whole thing's about. And some of those are more in touch with the story as Jesus and the apostles told it and the the scriptural kind of framework around it. And some are less in touch (laughs) with it. And if you happen to grow up in the corner of the Christian tradition that has forgotten or lost an effective tool set for how to hear scripture on its own terms. Odds are I'm not going to grow up hearing things that were really central for Jesus, but that don't seem to be what my tradition, particular Christian tradition is about. And that I, that's just, a, I don't know what to say other than apparently God really honors human dignity to let us be real partners, which means that our choices will shape how we experience the world and that we are all constantly learning not just individually, but over the course of centuries. So I don't know, Peter, um, when when I have these moments personally, for example, this happens to me all the time. Actually, it just happened to me recently where I just had some new interpretive insights in the letter of James that led me back to the Sermon on the Mount. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so I've been like, I've been saying a certain thing about these little set of ideas for years now. And I think I'm totally dissatisfied with how I've been talking about them (laughs) <laughs> for 25 years now. And I'm going to say it differently, you know, as of, you know, starting this week. And it's sort of like, what can you do except keep learning? And now you know say, how we all feel when we listen <laughs> to your stuff. I'm totally dissatisfied with my therapy session here. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> I'm at so all sorry. with that response. No, 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 no I, I'm, just... <laughs> I'm just trying to, I'm trying to put a positive spin and just say like, we're human, are by, we're by nature limited creatures who live in time and grow and our understanding matures. And when you hit a moment where you're like, whoa, I think so differently now. I don't, you can either, right? I guess, I mean, sometimes it's good to grieve, inappropriate to grieve. Like, oh, I think I've been missing a whole part of human experience because I haven't had the right framework for it. But then also it's like, but man, going forward, look at this new tool I have. And I guess maybe I'm just overly optimistic. I don't know. I love that. <laughs> I, I, I grew up in a very evangelical space. And Mm. so I heard about the Missio Day loads um, Mm. to Mm. join in in God's plan, not make up Mm. my own plan. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it was very active, uh, very activist, Mm. probably Mm. why I ended up part of the surf church movement as opposed to the skate church movement. Oh, fascinating. Exactly the same kind of principles. Yeah, yeah. Um, But it's all about the doing. How do you partner and participate in what God is up to? Mm. But the Imago Day is the invitation to embody and be mm. rehumanized as opposed to that passive waiting for God to come and rescue us and sort us out. Mm. And, mm-hmm. um, That's a good way of thinking about the, the Lord's prayer, the short little prayer, you know, that Jesus 
taught at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, but the first three requests are about for God's action in the world. May your will be done. May your kingdom come. May be your name be recognized as holy. But then the the flip side of that is about, you know, give us today our daily bread. Help us to forgive each other. And then please don't lead us into the, the test. And if you do, deliver us from the evil one. So now it's all about my ability to trust God, how I relate to my neighbor, and then what I do when my conflicts with my neighbors are so difficult that I feel like I might just do something really terrible. Please protect me from listening to the voice of the evil one. So, and somehow I think that those two halves are, they're the same coin, like how God's rule and name is made more holy is when we actually forgive each other and trust God instead of like taking what's good in our own eyes. So in other words, the biblical authors don't see God's action and human action in the world as as a binary. They have a very sophisticated way of constantly affirming both, right? In Protestant tradition, Arminianism and Calvinism have famously become these ways of saying two opposite ends of the spectrum. But the challenge is that both of those traditions can appeal to huge portions of the Bible, <laughs> uh, which to me is a sign of like, I think what we're meeting is a brilliant ancient Jewish sage who's telling us that these aren't, these are actually seem opposite, but in reality, they are, they're one, that the way God acts in the world is through his human image bearers and that one day God will sort that out for us. It's the story. It's the, it, that's the core, that's the core melody. And for me, what was so liberating in realizing that Jesus's story is a replaying the Adam and Eve story and the Israel story, but to success in life instead of failure and death, is that allowed me to see my story mm-hmm. in now every cycle of characters throughout the biblical story. And so Adam and Eve's story is my, I'm a human and a living one. So that's my story. I can learn from that, but I can also learn from Abraham's stories of failure and success or, De- you know, or Deborah's or Ruth's or Esther's or David's, and it all becomes the part of my family story through Jesus Messiah. And it's not like the Bible's like a handbook that tells me what to do. It's more like a set of glasses that that helps me to see reality with wisdom and with trustworthy eyes that trust that that God is doing in my story what he has been doing in all these stories, which is to bring about tov and goodness. Tim, it has been such an honor to have you on the podcast and to share so beautifully, so concisely, the vastness of the God story that we find ourselves in. Peter, are you about to... Well, just to thank you, Tim, you've been just this incredible blessing. And we are both in our own way, fanboys and fangirls, but actually it's just because of what we've seen with our own families, with our own lives. So what you and the team have put together in the project has been amazing because it brings the Bible to life. And when I, you know, to spend a little bit of time, you and get your passion for following Jesus, for the story that's told, is just fantastic. And, and our hope just is that other people catch that sense of passion mm. and excitement about the mm. larger God story. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Thank you for the invitation to talk about the things that I care about most, <laughs> along with you. <laughs> so there you go. That was Tim Mackey, co-founder of The Bible Project. 
If you did enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like us, rate us on iTunes or on Spotify. Give us a follow on Twitter or on Instagram. Subscribe to us. All information is available on beinghumanlens.com. But until next time, take care and God bless. Bye.